episode of the Community Development Podcast. My name is Russell Todd. A little bit of housekeeping before we crack on. This is the fifth episode of the podcast. Launched about six weeks ago. The first episode was with the first people to, to write about community work and community development, Alan Twelve Trees. I went down to Swansea to speak with him about his experience and his new book. Fifth uh, edition of that is due out. Uh, first community work was first published in 1982 and it's a seminal text and it's, it's still relevant and it's still important. And it's still a really essential book for anybody working in and with communities. So there's other podcasts there around the role of community development in heritage-led regeneration up in Brumbo in, in North Wales. We've talked about community philosophy with, uh, with Jan Hyten. Playwork as community development, which was something that had opened my eyes to a different way of looking at CD activity. But now I'm going to involve community development in a footballing context, which is just probably an excuse on my part to talk about football. And I've come up to Merthyr Tydfil in the South Wales Valleys, a town that I have great affection for. It's where I cut my teeth in community development. It wasn't the first CD job I ever had. Community of Wrexham has that dubious honour, um, where I made lots of mistakes and, and, and learned very, very quickly. But Merthyr was the first job I had on the community's first programme, and it's a place that, as I said, I'm, I'm, I have a great deal of affection for. A little bit of background noise, but we've decided to consciously try to embrace that because we have walking football taking place and we're at the ground of Merthyr Town Football Club. And I'm very grateful to Elliot Evans, the community development officer for the club, for his hospitality. So thank you, Elliot. And I'm with Tim Hartley. How are you, Tim? Hello there. And via Skype from Supporters Direct in London, uh, James Matthew. How are you, James? Thanks for having me along, Russell. You're welcome. So what we're going to do is talk about the Supporters Trust movement, I suppose primarily within the UK and within Wales, but there might be, James, more of an international perspective, I don't know, that might be brought to conversation. And the reason we've come to Merthyr Tydfil is because Merthyr Town is owned by a Supporters Trust. It owns the club 100%, lock, stock and barrel. There are other clubs where maybe Supporters Trusts have a stake or they might have input to the governance and the running of clubs, but Merthyr Town, 100%, responsible for the club day-to-day match days everything so we're going to explore some of that and look at the role of community development in that went back and looked at some of Merthyr from a historical perspective I mean it's you know it's the cradle of the industrial revolution there's an argument that without Merthyr having the iron to export there'd be no Cardiff you know it's the oldest industrial workforce in Wales it's the birth of modern Wales if we think of Wales as an industrialized country it was just a collection of small villages and fishing ports until people decided they wanted to come to Wales to find coal, to use coal, to make iron, etc. And from that we have this radical history, this labour history. I suppose that's labour with a small L, it's labour with a big L. It was the, the constituency that returned the first ever Labour MP to, to Houses of Parliament in 1900, Mr Keir Hardy. Although what I found out, actually, the constituency was Merthyr Tidville and Aberdare. The Aberdare bit tends to get dropped off, so... Big shout out to Aberdeen. 1821, Cardiff's population was a measly 3,000 and Merthyr was double that. And in the mid-19th century, it was the biggest town in Wales. At that point, early 19th century, Wrexham, northeast Wales, where I spent some time talking to Gary about Brumbo and the steelworks and the ironworks there. It was a much more populous part of Wales, but you know, this is where people were living. This is where people were collectivising. This is people, where people were working in some pretty grim conditions. In 1831, the very, very famous, infamous Merthyr Rising, where people collectivised to shout out against you know, inequality, exploitative working practices, you know, massive worker revolt, they raised the red flag. The Merthyr Rising is celebrated by the, the more recent kind of Merthyr Rising Festival. Yeah. It's been running for about five or six years, I think. Yeah. And it's that cradle of Welsh radicalism. And I would argue that a conscious rejection of private ownership model of football clubs is actually quite radical. And actually sort of saying, okay, let's come together as a trust, as a group of people, as a group of fans, let's be responsible, let's run this club. I think that's quite radical and I think it's quite perhaps telling and fitting that we've come to Merthyr. We could have gone to Wrexham to do this, we could have gone to maybe Newport, clubs in England of course. But I thought actually if we're going to talk about this, look look at community development through this perspective, then I thought Merthyr was the the town to come to. So that's enough about, it's not enough about Merthyr, there's plenty to say else about Merthyr, but hopefully set the scene. So, Elliot, just tell me a little bit more about your role, because I said you've got community development in the job title. There can't be too many football clubs that have got specifically community development. They might have community as a word in the job title, but not necessarily community development, which is something that caught my eye. So what's your role here? Uh, yeah, so basically my role within the club, as you said, community development officers. Essentially, um, at the club, we have something that we call the, the Martha's Community Trust, which is our community arm of the football club. Currently, it sits directly in the Merthyr Town, but we are in the process of separating that off 
so it does sit as a separate um, entity and basically the whole idea on the challenge that I face is to take Merthyr Town out into the local community and something that I always say is people have, and the local uh, community of Merthyr has supported this football club for over 100 years when it was Merthyr Tidville and now it's Merthyr Town and we're at that point now where the club is ready to go out and, and to give something back to its local community so engage with the, the wide variety of ethnic minority backgrounds that we have try and engage with different genders and, and really try and do something that's a little bit different that's potentially never been seen in Merthyr before. So that's predominantly what we look to do. And a lot of what we do is using the power of football. Um, I know we spoke about earlier about you know people saying, oh, Merthyr is a football in town. Football seems to be the best way to engage with the larger population of Merthyr. So that's predominantly what we what, what I do here at, here at Merthyr Town. Yeah, the, the author and sports cultural historian Gareth Williams, Barry Boy, originally talks about how soccer in the, specifically soccer, which is not always necessarily people's preferred uh, name for the game, in the early 20th century, talks about how it had, it had a firm grip on the town and actually some of the, the religious and the faith leaders in the town and the, the temperance movement weren't kind of happy with that because rugby union was taking hold uh, a lot of other places in the South Wales Valleys and... The, the amateur ethos, there was a feeling that that was a little bit more of a, a game with more moral fibre to it. Mm. So, yeah, we, we, we hear that a lot, I think, yeah, don't we? But, yeah. um, and you were talking earlier about how you're trying to develop links locally with other sports, and, yeah, and sometimes yeah. people come out with those sorts of statements, which doesn't necessarily yeah, yeah. help. Yeah, they but, do. Yeah, like yeah. I said, you know, Merthyr, Merthyr Rugby have had great success over the last couple of years and, and great investment there. <clears> but again, as a football club, whereas maybe in the past it would potentially be seen as a threat to Merthyr Town, and, you know, what can we do to to prevent that threat maybe overlapping with, with, with what we are trying to do but it's now as a club we're at that, that point where great success just up the road at the wound can we go and engage with Merthyr Rugby can we do something together you know? can we put something together that allows us to interact with our local communities so. we should have a hashtag maybe together stronger that would work <laughs> that, has that been used for anything I That's don't know you've got problems with copyright <laughs> private in joke about, about Welsh football James just to, to bring you in you work at Supporters Direct what's your role there who is Supporters Direct what is it looking to achieve ok well I've, I've been at Supporters Direct I mean, my testimonial year actually I've been, had the pleasure of working for SD for, for 10 years and the organisation's been going for almost 17 now. The inspiration really was a guy called Brian Lomax who in the early 90s helped save his local football club, Northampton Town. Like many clubs at that time really, the, the club was in financial difficulty. He helped to galvanise the community. They raised some money and, and rather than just hand it over and kind of assume that position of just being a supporter again, the other guys there at uh, Northampton Town decided well actually we want to be part of this club going forward you know we've raised this money we do want to be in this position again and he became the first elected director of on a professional football club in, in England the various football bodies and government at the time liked the idea and through a football task force report in 1999 decided could we replicate this model Brian's been involved with at Northampton and set up supporters trust other clubs you know back then as you can imagine Money was really starting to come into the game with the introduction of the Premier League. Um, communities really felt more, more and more disenfranchised from their club. You know, they saw these great stadia and these players, but you know the, the connection was being lost. So, you know, supporters' trust back then were really seen as a way to give supporters a, a greater voice, be more organised, professional, and, and potentially have a stake in their club to get that connection back, either through investment or just through uh, having a, a, a better voice. Fast forward to today and uh, what's actually happened and absolutely underlined by the work at Murfa is that model, although to begin with was was to think about reconnecting supporters with privately run clubs, has actually spurned more than 50 clubs that are now either 100% or majority owned by their supporters using that same model. So, you know, it's been a fantastic sort of evolution, really. Anyone who, who's listening, who follows sport across other countries, they'll know that this model isn't anything new. The Bundesliga and the 50 plus one model over there. But it certainly wasn't what SD was actually initially set up to do, but it's been a fantastic evolution and there's real momentum now growing behind the work of clubs like Merthyr and, and others in Wales. So it's fantastic. Tim, you are you, you sort of Wales's voice 
in relation to this movement? No, not really. I'm Vice Chair of, uh, of Supporters Direct, but obviously pushing a Welsh agenda at the same time there. And something that James and I have been working on is to try to get some element of SD Cymru so that uh, Welsh clubs, which have got fantastic exemplars, uh, like Wrexham, Merthyr, where we are today, Swansea City. You know, there are 11 supporters' trusts in Wales covering rugby league, rugby union and, of course, football at professional and amateur levels. So I want to push that Welsh agenda, uh, and I think we do need to look for public money to help kick-start the kind of investments we've seen in places particularly at Merthyr and Wrexham. The cooperation between the local council and the sports clubs the way that we can be watching over 50s football, which ticks a health agenda box, the work people have done in terms of promoting mental health through the clubs themselves and through football, community engagement and volunteering. You know, there's a lot of Mm. money which is being spent, but it's not spent physically. This is emotional and physical capital which is going in there. And this money, this capital, will not be expended unless it were for this voluntary and cooperative model which is exemplified by supporters' trusts and by supporter ownership of their mm. sports clubs. Mm. No, I couldn't agree more. We talk about you know, the power of volunteering and the, that, that the motivation that people have to prove things in their community, to, to articulate their voice. And, and James, you know, you, you, you used the word voice sort of several times uh, when you were talking just then, and I think that's key, and we talk a lot about that in, in maybe a traditional community development kind of context, where that's working in communities, maybe where there's issues or aspects of disadvantage or poverty, but actually it can apply around a community of interest in this way, which is, you know, fans of a club. It's interesting you talked about a couple of the, the, the rugby clubs as well, and I think it's just beginning to dip its toe into that into that game as well, isn't it? Well, it's very interesting that Llanelli uh, have had a supporters' trust called Creasing de Gwech, which I think is rather good. That means shirt 16, so they're the 16th member of the team. And they're trying to get engaged because rugby union, particularly in Wales, is at that kind of stage of development. But I think this uh, community ownership and community engagement model could be really successful. Cardiff Rugby and the Blues there, um, they've had a trust up and running for about a year. Of course, they've got a a real interest there in the ground Mm. and they've got a real stake, a financial stake in that club. So they're in a strong position. But let's not forget, of course, the North Wales Crusaders, a rugby league team as well. This model of community benefit society, to give it its proper term, is something which can be transferred to every sport And Supporters Direct supports people in speedway and in ice hockey and in cricket. So it's not just a football thing. You can transfer that model again out of sport as well to many other institutions. And it is all about making the most of what you've got and getting your community engaged. Supporters Direct isn't ownership model neutral. We actually believe that a better and more sustainable club and sports group will be one which is community owned. In fact, you look at traditionally football clubs particularly were owned by the local butcher or, you know, you move up the leagues then, you get big business or an industry taking part. You go to the Premier League and it's massive financiers from overseas. Is that good for the game? Is that Mm. good for supporters? The bottom line for us is that football clubs are not simply businesses and we as supporters are not simply consumers of a product. We are an intrinsic part of the club and we're the model custodians and owners of that club. Take that a step further and say, how do you get involved? My club, Cardiff City, I'm not going to own it anytime soon, as these lucky people in Merthyr mm. have done. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't have direct input. We should have structured dialogue with the club, understand the finances, have an element of transparency. Why not have a supporter director on every football club board in England, Wales and Scotland. If you can't own it, and at the moment the law doesn't necessarily favour community-owned clubs, then give us some sort of stake in it and make that a realistic, structured and legal stake. So just on the issue of the trust, you touched on a CBS, a Community Benefit Society. What are the sort of the technical or the legal aspects that people need to be aware of? James? I always sort of chuckle a little bit. I've, I've been very fortunate to come over to Wales and, and work with some of the great clubs. And I always sort of laugh when I start to tell people in Wales about the cooperative model because <laughs> no doubt the people that are in the audience have got plenty to tell me about the cooperative model as well. So first thing to say, it, fit, it does fit so well with Welsh history and, and people tend to get cooperatives and local communities working together but the technical part yeah it's it's essentially it's a type of mutual the members own it collectively on a one member one vote basis 
there's limited liability, just like you'd have with a, a, a company, which basically means that your risk really is, is limited to, in this case, we say one pound of your first membership fee. So it's a model that has all the similar, similar sort of powers that a company would have, like being able to take on leases and raise money and employ people. It just does it under a legal clothes that we think more suit in this case a sports club so you know there are little protections in there for example when you register a community benefit society you have to convince the financial conduct authority who act very much like companies house do for companies in a sense as the regulator but they go further because you have to prove to them that this is an organization that exists for the benefit of the community not the individual when you change your rules you have to firstly obviously get agreement from the membership but then you also have to register that again with the FCA. So they then will look at the ethos and spirit of the rules you're trying to change to make sure they're in keeping to protect that community benefit value that runs through, in this case, a sports club. But, you know, there's other things too, like the rules we use have the option of an asset lock clause, which really stop the members clogging together to find a way to distribute the assets of that, in this case, sports club away so they can't convert and become a a private company because you know we know with a private company model that you can pay dividends that you can also the shares go up and down in value people ultimately invest and hold those shares for their own personal wealth you know this is this is about protecting collective wealth and it's a model that appeals to potential funders it appeals to potential sponsors it appeals to people who can see that they will put time and energy into this because it's a collective benefit. So it, it just feels like the perfect fit for a sports club. You know, that's the problem that we faced is that because of the way particularly football is set up and it allows clubs to lose money and it facilitates people who have got more money to then have more say, that whole dynamic just gets lost. And with a better regulatory system in, in football, this would be much more of a competitive advantage being a cooperative being a cbs so you know that's another part of our work is is to try and find a way to incentivize what we think is good practice at clubs breaking even living within your means encouraging volunteering encouraging community engagement these should be things we think should be part of a regulatory structure so james it's almost from interpreting what you're saying correctly it's almost the the, the model that we've got the cbs sort of structure and status that we've got is almost despite the, the overall regulatory framework then absolutely it's not a natural fit with the way football is set up at the moment if any of your followers look at deloitte they do an annual review into football finance and, and they look at how much clubs are losing year on year and when you get to lower levels of the professional game so so league two so where newport county are you know the average club in league two will lose half a million pounds a year roughly so for newport county they've got to find a way to make up that gap just to be on a level playing field and we think that actually community ownership you can make up that gap because more people volunteer more people sponsor you can build better partnerships and a few more benefits too, but you're not being helped by the fact that the way the league is set up, that got to find that shortfall. And you know, you take that model into the non-league and lower league, and actually, it should become even more of a competitive advantage for clubs like Merthyr Town. As someone said to me from Lewis, another support-run club, you've got to be big in your community before you can be big in football, because it basically dog eat dog. You're going to lose because there's always Real Madrid or you know someone at the top of the chain. So. Get big in your community first and then see where that takes you until we see the sort of change in the way that the league rules and the regulatory structure works, where they're actually incentivising clubs that, that behave themselves and do more for their community, which happens in Germany and other countries, but not to the degree we'd like over here. I quite like that as a strap plan, get big in your community first. I, I, I do, I quite like that. James, you talked about words like, you know, collective. You talked about, you know, the principle of one member, one vote. It seems to be at the heart of this, and, and Elliot, you spoke about gender and age and we've got the so we say older men doing the work in football we've got Wales under 17s women's playing on the ground a bit later today seems to be equality and fairness and justice at the heart of this and, and, and unashamedly yeah. so which runs frankly quite counter to a lot of the other language you tend to see associated with football there's a narrative coming yeah. out here this pitch behind us now is 3g yeah yeah this pitch i remember coming up here and it's bogged down it was rained off for pre-season friendlies <laughs> 
This pitch wouldn't exist unless it were for the structure of this club here, which was able to attract monies which a private company either could not, or if it were here, would not do. So you need to see this in terms of what the work that Elliot is doing in terms of engaging the community and what the status of the club actually allows him to do. You wouldn't be able to do this if it were a private outfit. Mm. But side by side with that, that is that engagement. It's brilliant that you've got the top end of the young women's game here after these people who had probably been referred by their GPs to do a bit of walk-in football. Brilliant stuff that you got those two things together. Wouldn't it be nice if you could replicate this up the leagues? Now, supporters' trusts in the Premier League are doing some fantastic work. Spirit of Shankly in, in Liverpool, for example, and Tottenham Hotspur, brilliant. They're representing fans, but that element of actually digging deeper into the community, bringing young people, families, more women into the game. We've talked about disability football and the like. Yes, the trusts in professional football are doing it, but it's almost they're doing it as an add-on to their day job rather than being an intrinsic part mm-hmm. of the community. And that's what I think the lower leagues and non-league football are actually giving us an example of how it could look. Why are so many people turning away from professional football? I know a lot of people who've torn up their season tickets for Cardiff City, for example, and said, no, I'm going to watch Tafswell or Merthyr because they like that sense of community. You're you're nodding, you're one of them. I think what's interesting then, we talk about this in more, and I hate to use the phrase sort of mainstream community development because this is mainstream community development, I would argue. But when we talk about it in the traditional community of place then... Um, you know, on the estates, in towns and, and villages, etc. We'll talk about the need to mainstream it then. I'm using the term again, probably clumsily, but that you mainstream this activity into what you do. So you're delivering a service as a local authority or as a local charity or whoever that might be to a certain group of people. And that actually the engagement should be at the heart of that. It shouldn't be, we're doing this, oh, and then we'll do some engagement kind of like Thursday afternoon for a couple of hours. And, and it has to be in there. And I think what's interesting, what you've said there, Tim, is that how for a lot of clubs in like Merth, that is, is intrinsic. It is at the heart of what they're doing and looking to achieve. When I, when I travel around and, and meet people at football clubs and supporters trusts and that, sometimes I say to them, I say, this is not about the football, is it? But what football brings to it is a focus. Because the pyramid is so high, look at international football and the Mm. Premier League and Real Madrid, and the base is so wide, there are so many people playing football, being engaged in it. It brings people in. It's got something which other sports and which other interests don't have. It's got that sexiness, if you like, that people are attracted to it. And that's why it's such a good thing to hang all that community work on, because people get it and they enjoy it. James, do you, you want to come in there? Yeah, I was just going to say, picking up on the point you're making, Russell, about community consultation and engagement is absolutely like it's it's the core value of what a CBS or a supporters trust or a sport-run club is. It's not an add-on. There are some very well-run privately-owned clubs, that, you know, absolutely, and those tend to be the ones that have realised that they need to try and have a genuine dialogue with what they would say is their customers. They need to actually speak to them and engage them and listen to them but more often than not we tend to see that it's it's this term fan engagement that's kind of been spawned and the primary driver for fan engagement is really a privately owned club increasing its commercial revenue which uh, you know it's not about necessarily having a genuine discussion around you know a, a key issue in the life of that football club and I don't want to make this podcast go on too much of a tangent but there's an obvious example of that down in in Cardiff and a certain colour change you know so this model here whether the elected board aren't particularly up for consultation or not they don't have a choice because the members are the people that put them there there's a strong constitution that has various protections within it on certain issues or certainly they know that they're up for re-election if they don't serve those members interests so it's a different relationship and just final point as everyone will probably know you know people can't they won't just change from supporting their whatever sports club it is, whether that's an amateur club that they've, you know, that through generations has, has been a big part of the town or village or a, a big professional club. It's very difficult for someone to change that passion and love for it. And we've seen places like Blackpool where they've gone from crowds of 20 odd thousand to, you know, less than 2,000. And there's a whole series of people that have just disengaged with that club and it happens elsewhere at Coventry and others they've disengaged with that club because they've got no voice they've got no say 
and they're just fed up. And that's where Tim started his podcast with talking about the human capital. All of that is being lost, yeah. you know. So surely there's a model where we can. It might not be always quite as slick and perfect, you know. Decisions might take a little bit longer than perhaps they would in a private company but you have to bring people with you and that's through the consultation and clubs just can't afford to be losing generations and whole reams of, of the community that should really be their ambassadors uh, and actually they're sadly often working you know against the club because because the relationship's gone it's, it's a key part of what we do and, and try and change well there's absolutely a parallel there with local authorities with colleges with your big institutions could be sort of cultural centers museums all that sort of stuff i think there's a direct parallel that unless they are involving people and listening yeah. to what people want to want, want to do want to achieve yeah. want to involve them not always necessary in a practical sense it could be just via you know a regular newsletter or whatever it might be but at least unless there is that appetite to involve people then people will, I suppose, yeah. to coin a phrase, vote with their feet. Yeah. So, Elliot, just in terms of, we've talked about it a little bit generally, okay, specifically in Merthyr Town, the club folded in, is it 2010, I think? Yeah. What was interesting is I was going back through the history. I mean, um, people don't tend to necessarily know that Merthyr Town was once in the English Football League. Yes, of course. And uh, between 1920 and 30, uh, you know, you had a massive sort of depression in the, in the 20s, massively affected those communities based on primary heavy industry. Yeah. Club eventually folded in 1934, and again it was it was, it was Gareth Williams again, uh, the historian, and John Davis, the, the late great John Davis. So I was I was touching on just to kind of contextualise some of this. In 1934, when the club folded, unemployment in Merthyr was 62%, which is just yeah. phenomenal. Club revived in 1945. I think that was the club that went through to 2010. Yeah. Sadly, it folded. So what happens in 2010 that gets us up to 2017 with the model that we've well, got? One point before we 2010. The interesting part that a lot of people don't know is that. The supporters trust that with the organisation that folded the old Merthyr Town, which is quite unique as well, because a lot of the time the clubs fold and then it's picked back up. The supporters trust they give a loan to the football club as Merthyr Tidville, um, knowing that was their only way then to take them to court to try and get it repaid. And eventually that supporters trust liquidated its own club essentially and then reformed its its own club again. I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, so the supporters took Merthyr Town, put into administration, uh, Merthyr Tidville rather, put into administration club liquidated, and then the same supporters trust started the new Merthyr Town as it is now. So when we first reformed, we couldn't have Penelope Park here, obviously our spiritual home, because we didn't have the lease, it was with the council, uh, so we had to go down to Taft Wells, as it was, and we played out the Taft Wells for a year, we ground shade with those, and then in 2011, the back end of that, we secured the lease, and we returned to our spiritual home. Yeah. Oh, so that's interesting, I mean, again, we talk about empowerment, that's actually very empowering. I mean, it's incredibly potentially very demotivating. I mean, that really is almost counterintuitive. You're taking your own club, yeah, yeah, driving it to the wall. But I mean, there's something quite empowering about that. But but that's an interesting one because the supporters and the supporters trust knew what they were doing. Yes. They had an owner yeah. who wanted to sell this ground and move to somewhere else, which was completely unsuitable. Mm-hmm. And they were being asked to subsidise that move, and they said, "No, we're not doing this because we know it's not in the long term yeah. interests yeah. of the football yeah. club." Yeah goes back to the ownership model so don't just be a supporters club we are a cheerleader for a club yeah we can have that and we all support our clubs you know mm-hmm. but think a little bit more deep than that about what is the structure of this club some of this is boring so let other people do it for you but support it anyhow what is the structure of this club how is it financed how are we going to invest to make sure that it is delivering for us as a community not for the benefit of, a, of a, a, an individual who may own it or for a group of people who want to milk it for money on a regular basis. It's interesting you sort of say it's not in the interest of the club. So many clubs now taking their grounds to out-of-town developments, retail parks, etc., that are having a knock-on impact economically then within, in terms of retail, for instance, within, yeah. within towns. And again, I've been spending a lot of time on that recently. This is, I mean, genuinely at the heart of the community. I mean, it is built up all around, isn't it? Yeah. It is very, very residential. And it's not just not in the interest of the club, Tim. It's probably not in the interest of the community. Yeah, you, you, you can look at this both ways, can't you? I mean, people say, well, you've got to move. You've got to move with the times. You've got to go to a new shiny stadium. I went to Colchester last season. It, it, it's on the edge. It's, it's not even on the edge of an industrial park. There's a bit of a, an estate away, way away from town. Not attractive, not accessible. Now, Brighton have had great success with their out-of-town stadium, but I'd say it's because they've got those public transport links in there and they are very much a community club. So, as I say, you can work this both ways. What is attractive, though, is a ground which is near the people it serves. You look at Cardiff Rugby Club, for example. I'd be very upset if they were to leave the Cardiff Arms Park right in the centre of the city, not just the town, right in the centre of the city. 
But Merthyr is very blessed here. What we need to do is to give people the choice to list football grounds as assets of community value. This exists under Localism Act in England. It hasn't been brought in in Wales, which is disappointing. What this means is that if someone is going to sell a ground or a club or a pub, for example, a community pub, there's got to be a moratorium of six months on that sale so that a local supporters trust or a group has a right to bid for it. It doesn't mean they're going to win that bid, but it sticks it on hold for six months. Now, we need to have that in Wales. It's been very successful in England. We have a lot of football clubs. I think Anfield James is one of them. Goodison Park as well, I'm not so sure. But some of these big clubs, and it's totemic, is to say we want this asset to be a continuing asset of community value. We don't want you to sell up and go out to Birkenhead or wherever because this is where we were brought up. This is where my club is. That's interesting because, James, you talked about how, yes, okay, fine, this model might actually mean that some decisions take longer to be made. So it recognises that you you need a bit more time for that collectivization to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Just picking up on some of the points around the stadium and the community, you know, the obvious thing that you'd say is, well, what you want is a, is a consultation about what is the best for the club and the community. And too often the um, stadium developments that we've seen over the years have been driven by, you know, the, the value of the club. Um, land in a community, you know, and actually it's it's more driven by the fact that the club's in crisis and it needs to sell its nice spot in the town or village or, or city and, and it moves to the outskirts, you know, and I've seen some research on some of the biggest stadia which shows a spike in year one and then a gradual decline after that. What you really want is a consultation about is this move out of town actually you know, people talk about, well, it might be more accessible to drive to, but actually, what are you missing out on in terms of people that turn up and walk and have a drink and, you know, spend other money at, at the ground? So, again, it, it's, it's all about who's involved in those decisions. And I think that's what Tim, you know, Tim's hinted at there with the ATV uh, legislation is, is that's really about driving these decisions above ground. I mean, it, it, as it stands in current legislation it's not as powerful as we'd like but at least it means that you shouldn't wake up the next morning and find out that the ground or training ground or whatever facility has been listed has suddenly been sold to someone else so it forces it into the public arena and and it does give the potential for a community to, to mount their own bid that's the key really put you on the spot a little bit earlier but I mean would something like that localism act or a variation on that in Wales that gave you the opportunity to do something with whether it was the ground or, or, or other aspects, would that be a, a, would that appeal to the to the club? I, I'm not too sure. I mean, back when the the previous owners of Merthyr Tidville, as it was, when they decided, as you said, Tim, that they wanted to take the ground elsewhere, back then it didn't matter. The fans had no say if they wanted to take it; they were taking it. It was simple as that. Um, whereas now, I, I think, first of all, with the club being 100 percent owned by the supporters, we couldn't do it anyway. You know, so that almost limited us to, mm. to stay up in our yeah, park, and I think. Yeah. Penana Park is 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 Merthyr, is Merthyr Town. When everybody talks about Merthyr Town, they talk about Penana Park and what we've done here. But it is it is overlapping because ultimately, as some people know, the old Kandak Suite, as it was our, our previous bar, that is now gone. And and for a lot of the fans, that was something that they they struggled to grasp because they had so many great memories in that bar. You know, that's our Kandak Suite. That's 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 Merthyr Tidville. That's Merthyr Town. But ultimately, it was run down. It was dated, and it wasn't. Um, attractive to, to the wider community whereas this new facility is and ultimately as a club we don't have any investment from pretty much anyone in terms of coming in and paying the bills we have to generate their own income and there has to be a balance between commercialisation of a football club and trying to stay in touch with what the fans really want from, from a football club and as a, as a club that's something that we, we, we battle with every single day and that's the point, isn't it, that you make the decision. I'll give you an example. Exeter uh, City Football Club is majority owned by the Supporters Trust. They don't want to list it as an asset of community value because they as a trust and the supporters think we may want to move somewhere else in the city. But what we're saying is, as James put it, drive that decision-making process above ground and let yeah. people have a say. Yeah. Not as we saw in Wimbledon, not only am I moving the stadium because I want to build a supermarket and get the money from it, but I'm changing the name. And you guys who have walked to the ground with your dads and granddads, 
are never going to be able to come and see it again. Yeah. So that's that. It, it's totemic, as I say, and it's not for everyone. Uh, but give us the right to be engaged, mm, and and mm, that's got to be a formal mm, legal right, which doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah. Very briefly, the National Assembly would have had to have voted to agree that element of the Localism Act, which gave you the asset of community value right to bid, and they chose not to do that. There was a consultation, maybe it's a year, year and a half ago, where I hoped that there was thought around how we can make what they do in England better. So, as I said, there are some weaknesses with it. For example, the community might have a right to bid, but at the end of the process, the landlord could sell it to anyone, no matter what the price was. There's... Another real big issue that we always find with sports clubs when people leverage debt against them and before it's too late, essentially, that the prop, you know, the problem's gone and, and the asset's been leveraged to the hilt and the only way their club can survive is, is to sell it. So, you know, I guess we were hoping that, that something might evolve out of the fact that Wales hasn't enacted this power, that they, they were looking for something better. So if there's a plea there that... You know, hopefully there is something that's going to come through. But what we've got in England is better than nothing in terms of driving a decision above ground. And obviously, it's not just sport. It's other community facilities and assets of community value across all different sectors that are going to be important for different reasons in Wales. Just for clarity, it was the Welsh Government decision, not the National Assembly. There's a lot of support for the community and cooperative agenda within the Assembly Mm. proper. Mm. But this was a ministerial decision based on advice from her civil servants, uh, which we disagreed with at the yeah, time. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose if anything, you know, the history of the Labour movement, again, coming to a town like Merthyr and looking at it specifically, you know, it, it's workers' radical, it's, it's Labour history, it's marginal gains, it's small gains, it's a winning a bit here, it's a concession there, it's taking something there and, and making representation. And I suppose, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as they say. But in terms of the, the football club here, Elliot, coming yeah. back to you, you talked about the, the, the process by which the trust came to, to take the club. I'm really genuinely quite struck because I wasn't aware of this, at, at how it, kind of central it was, the trust, to get rid of the old club. I'm yeah. really quite struck by that, actually. Yeah. Where are we now then? So what's been happening? Because I mean, you, you talked about the, the new facilities yeah. here and they look absolutely terrific. It really does look smart. You, you get a sense of coming somewhere that, yeah. that's important, that, yeah. that has a bit of respect. And, but you talked about you know, modernising things and getting, you know, this is how things are done. You can spruce these things up. It doesn't have to go to the outer town, yeah. you know? And it is looking, it's looking lovely. Yeah, and, and as they said, you know, initially for us, the first big investment that we had was the 3G pitch. We got right. that through the Fossil Front Community Benefit Fund, which is rolled out by Miller Argent, or I'm not sure they own it anymore, but Miller Argent basically own the, the open cast up, uh, up in Dowless, where obviously they're opening up and, and, and pulling coal out of the mountain. So essentially that was the first big investment for us, and that was the catalyst for the club to, to start moving forward the way that it was because it allowed us to open the gates of, of Penn Allen Park and start welcoming in the community on a regular basis. At the same time, it generates a lot of income for the football club. Um, and as I come back to, you know, we are solely supporters own, so we generate all our income. We have nobody um, sort of pumping money into us to keep us going. So we have to look at different ways um, to bring that money in. And the, the 3G pitch was, was where we really sort of started that. Off the back of that then, it is worth noting that we've always had fantastic support from our local council definitely by far the club's biggest partner that we have. They're always there to support us with advice, whether it be on business or, or, or sort of different aspects of that. And they've always found pots of money for us to tap into. When we first came to Penana Park, we had to get a new boiler and different stuff like that because we hadn't been here for a year. And they've always supported us that way. And then they supported us with the Viable and Vibrant Places Fund, VVP, Government and European Funding, which allowed us to demolish the old clubhouse, which was the Canuck Suite, and obviously we've built this brand new um, state-of-the-art facility here at Penham Park with Webley's Bar, named after, of course, the great Di Webley, and downstairs named after Romans because Merthyr, uh, sorry, Penham Park was once a Roman fort mm. years and years and years mm. ago. So mm. that's currently mm. where we are. And at the moment, Merthyr Town is in a position where we're becoming a bit of a commercial giant. You know, there's so much business being generated in and around the club because ultimately that's what pays the bills. That's what pays the players, that's what pays the staff. Well, it's interesting, we remarked on this as we pulled up to didn't we? We parked in the car park and plenty of spaces on match day are sponsored Correct. by yes. business, yeah. but all those businesses were Merthyr, Dowlice, yes. yeah. uh, Ebervale, yeah. I mean, even a couple yeah. of alleys away, you yeah. know? Yeah. And 
you know, we, we both remarked that that really did struck us, didn't it? Yeah, it but I think people want to be part of the success of Merthyr Town. But also, I think there's a misconception. Just because it's a cooperative, it doesn't mean that you don't believe in commercial income. Mm. This yeah. stuff can happen. You know, you, you don't have to be anti-capitalist mm. to promote cooperative societies and businesses. Of course, Merthyr's going to grow. But it's doing it in a way where people who are intrinsically involved, who are the moral guardians of it, are now the actual physical and financial owners of it. And that's what's important. No reason why you shouldn't build a new stadium, because it's by and for the people. So there's this misconception that football clubs particularly can only be run by private business. No, they don't. And you spoke of VVPs, that was Vibrant Viable Places. Yeah. That was a Welsh Government regeneration programme. Yeah. Heard of figures, yes, the £124 million capital. Capital's often hard to come by for, for community ventures, yeah. then, let's put it in a yeah. very broad sense. But those applications had to demonstrate partnership and they had to demonstrate community involvement and engagement at the yeah. heart of those. Yeah. They're focused on town centres and also areas that are in the Community's First programme. Mm-hmm. Okay, So yeah. those areas of the, of the highest disadvantage in, in Wales. So it's focusing on and building on those things. But it, what I've found refreshing about it, and there, there's some things I would criticise about it, and I won't do it here, it wouldn't be appropriate. But what was refreshing about it was it was looking at those areas as saying, okay, what assets have they got and what can this money build on yeah. rather than what are we going to hammer a place on because it's lacking this or it's deficient in that. Or yeah. So we talk about the asset-based approach, we talk about building on assets and VVP by and large, mm-hmm. certainly the examples of the money that that went into that I'm aware of through, through Communities First, very much did that. Yeah. I think it's quite telling that VVP came to a football club that's community-owned. There's no VVP money going into Cardiff City near Grangetown, which is community's first area, and so on. And that's not singling Cardiff City out, but as an example, yeah. I think that's more, however, than, than just a coincidence. Yeah. You talked about the relationship with the local authority and how important that is, and I think what Moise and said, they're your biggest yeah, yeah. In, sort of in, partner. In the general sense, yeah, in the, in the yeah. sense that they support in so many different ways. It's not just financial. You know, they, They're always at the end of the phone, they'll come up, they'll sit down, they'll look at the club, they'll look at the club's business plan, and I say scrutinise, but, you know, they'll question things that maybe we wouldn't ourselves because we don't have that expertise. You know, we, we always have a chief executive says, as a football club, we don't have all the answers. You know? So it's important that we interact with other organisations that can support us in other ways. But, it, but, but the, the relationship with the local authority is important because they obviously see you as a delivery agent for their education agenda, for their health agenda, for their inclusion agenda, you know, for their tackling antisocial behaviour agenda. Yeah. So this is where we need to see football clubs in a different way from you turn up on a Saturday and you have a cup of tea and a, and a bacon butty uh, and that's it, end of story. You know, Definitely. And we've seen here today these people are engaged not on a once, twice weekly mm. basis in the season but intrinsically engaged, intertwined with the community. And, and, and I guess, and I haven't spoken to Merthyr Council for some time, but I guess they absolutely love this club because they're doing a lot of their work for them. Yeah, yeah. and, a, mm-hmm. and yeah. a big point that I always put out to the football club because I've been involved with the club since I was... I've always supported the club, started to play when I was 11, came through to 18, went to the academy to coach, and now I'm, I'm a full-time employee. But one thing I always used to say to the club, the club had the 3G pitch laid, and that wasn't necessarily the club engaging with the community. The community work is when we go out there and engage with them, when we get into the local schools, when we work with local charities, and we, we run girls' football, we run disability, that is engaging with the community. Opening the gates to a 3G pitch isn't, for me, necessarily engaged with the community. It's a great asset for the club, but you know it's then the hard work you do off the back of it. And I think the club really has embraced that, and it continues to embrace it. And then when the local council sees that, then it thinks, yes, there's more we can do at Merthyr Town because it wants to work with this community and it wants to tackle key issues. And I think at the moment that's where the club is, but it's finding that balance between community engagement and community development and then, of course, understanding that the club has to generate money through different business streams and working with different organisations. Mm-hmm. But partnerships for us is massive. Um, and again, coming back to the community trust, by far for me, our biggest partner is, is the FAW Trust because they've invested in projects that we've done and to carry the FAW with us, there's always that sort of stigma that surrounds me with the town that's playing in the English system. But the FAW Trust have really bought into what we um, believe at Merthyr Town and the impact that we can have using the power of football a lot of the time. Um, and that really has sprung our community work onto different levels. So partnerships for us is, is massive. It really is. It's really heartening. You're hearing it's at the heart of what you're trying to do. You know, it's not just we've done this. 
box ticked. Yeah. What can we do more? What yeah, can we do okay. differently? Yeah, what, where, yeah. where can we kind of get deeper into the community? Yeah. And that's really, really heartening. To me, it's just as plain as the hand in front of my face that there is so much good which can be generated through this, so much capital, social and economic. All we need is to have government and local government and National Assembly and Welsh Government to put money into it to help people, to help yeah. themselves. It's there. These, this model exists, you know. We, we don't need to start another scheme, guys. It's just yeah. here. Help mm. us. Yeah. Uh, James, are there, are there things that Elliot's talking about in respect to Merthyr Town that, that chimes with, with other experiences that you've had with other clubs? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was going to just do a quick plug back of the last bit of discussion there, which is we have had some good conversation with the Welsh Government and FAW got some fantastic people there too and, and we've been to see Sport Wales and they have... They've always been keen to see how we could do a bit more in Wales with the SD model. And to start that off, they have given us a bit of money which we can use to match fund development work, not just in football, but in, in any sport in Wales, to do things like to change the ownership structures, to do some community engagement, to do community shares, which is a great way to raise finance from the community. So just a quick plug that we are looking to work with different clubs. Hopefully we've got a project with Real and there's a couple of others in the pipeline, but we're really keen you know, to see really which, which sports clubs. I mean, a lot of them will probably feel like they're community-owned, but actually there's an opportunity to do a bit of work um, to tidy it up and, and to create a bit more of a buzz around them and see some of the benefits and, and hopefully allow them some of the opportunities that Murphy have taken so, so well. The work at Wrexham, I've been fortunate to, to work with those guys a fair bit, and they've really done everything on the spectrum of being a supporters' trust. They've campaigned hard to, to make sure that the racecourse ground remained as I think it's the fifth oldest football ground in the world. You know, at times that could easily have gone and become, you know, a B and Q or something. So they campaigned hard to keep that. They've helped scrutinise and change the ownership, and now. You know, after all those campaigns, they're obviously stepping up themselves. They've turned around a, a football club that was losing the best part of a million pound a year. They've made it break even. They've kept the academy on. And now they've just uh, entered into, I think it's a 99-year lease, to, to, to bring back the race course ground. So not bad, really, for a bunch of volunteers and raggy-ass football fans. You know, and that's just, just Wrexham. So... Yeah, yeah, um, no, and specifically you know, Wrexham talking about inclusivity as well. They do a massive amount. I think they're one of the leading clubs around disability football yeah. and disability rights um, and supporters' rights as well. And yeah. you know, it's, it's it's inclusivity across the spectrum. And you've touched on any number of things, uh, Elliot. But um, just to kind of give a plug, I mean, Wrexham would have been in my thinking to do this. You could have done this with members of the trust there and people employed. And I've got a lot of uh, affection to that club and, and links to that town as well. Yeah, uh, it's a bit further away yeah. from Cardiff to drive to. That was the, <laughs> that's that's what yeah. it boils down to. To be honest, nothing but, nothing else. But, other than but that. also, I mean, I think it's important as well to recognise. You know, there's other clubs that are at an earlier stage, really, in in their support or ownership journey. And Newport County certainly springs to mind. I mean, you think what a difficult hand they've got in many respects in terms of. You know, they don't own their facility. The club has really been living beyond its means based on Lotto Les, as he's probably known, money. The supporters have stepped up and people back them. You know, they raised a quarter of a million pounds in a month to take on that club and packed out a couple of evenings in, in the theatre down, down there by the river. You know, they got a real buzz. But, but, you know, they've got it difficult. They've got a really hard job to now, I suppose, manage the expectations of their supporters re-engage that club with its community, sort out you know its long-term future, not to mention short-term future around the pitch. But you know they're huge challenges, and you know the, the, I just you know I, I've seen you know people react in different ways, and I think actually you know they the supporters and community, some people are really standing up, and and I, I just hope they continue to do so because it's a totally different thing now. The community does own that club. The dynamic has changed, and people kind of need to grasp and realise that. Murphy Town and Wrexham are certainly inspirations for for some of the others that are coming through. But but not just inspirations. I mean, someone we talk about in in community development in a kind of a purer sense, in a more theoretical sense, is the importance of learning at the heart of it. And actually, you can be affecting positive change. You can be generating social change. But actually, unless there is learning at the heart of it, 
weaved in, designed in, yeah. conscious learning, not though not necessarily formal learning, study, college, universities, though of course it might be. Well then actually it isn't community development. Now that be that 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 could be word games and semantics, but it's it's one of those kind of core core principles. So so to what extent are those clubs might Mirtha not just be an inspiration but actually be a, a, a potential source of learning, might be a lesson for others to to draw on? What you said is another description of sustainability, I'd say. And this thing that it does uh, recreate itself, and that's what sustainability means, isn't it? That you can you can carry on doing what you're mm. doing and grow. So in, in that sense, it is. Of course, it's a learning. It, it's a learning ladder. You know, it's a learning opportunity that you are developing these clubs, those skills within it, which will then be transferred to life outside of the football club. And that's why I'm saying it's not about the football. Mm. It is about community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to add, like over the years, what Supporters Direct has done, we're in quite a fortunate position. Obviously, we, we've got a network of like, grassroots volunteer activism, really. You know, either either trying to own their club or get a voice in the club, or they are owning their club. So over the years, we have captured some of this, and we've put together various research and guidance and, and policy positions. So one that was fairly recent, in 2015, we... We were looking at actually, could you incentivise community ownership through a tax status similar to something called the Community Amateur Sports Club, which basically gives rate relief, gift aid and and benefits on corporation tax for the way that the clubs are structured, but also the amount of benefit they bring to their community. And we based that on some, some research looking at six clubs and we measured their volunteer value. And we also measured, measured something we called inward investment, which was money that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to raise or get if they weren't community owned. We found that just based on the minimum wage, so not even taking into account people who give skills for different professions that you know would, would pay far higher than that, the average of those clubs, it was around about £125,000 a year worth of volunteering value. And this is clubs that were sort of semi-professional level, a couple of low professional clubs, similar size to Merfa. That's a huge contribution, mm. just at minimum weight. And also a similar amount, about 150000 a year, around that inward investment. So as you sort of alluded to there, Russell, it's very important we do capture the learning and evidence you know things like the social value that these clubs are bringing not just to help other clubs but also to help build fairer policies and create an environment that incentivizes community ownership of sport that's encouraging to hear so Elliot what in short term what are your what are your next sort of goals what are you what are you anything you're particularly working on now obviously you know a lot of people say oh pre-season and with the town you must all be sitting up there doing nothing but for us um it's really sort of planning for for forthcoming season the, the biggest project that we got this year is first ever women's team to play out the Merthyr Town. We have had women's teams play here previously, but it was under a different club and we just let them use the pitch. So this year we've launched a brand new women's team that will go into the South Wales Women's Girls League. So it's obviously a lot of work around that in terms of trying to make that sustainable um, and sort of setting a vision for that. But we've got a lot of projects going on in terms of uh, working with local housing associations, Wales and West, Merthyr Housing, to once again take Merthyr Town out into the community. A lot of our work previously has been done, you know, walking football, coming to Pendulum Park, girls football, coming to Pendulum Park, or going out into local schools. And now what we're looking to do is try and set up, try and link in with local community hubs, community first, voluntary action, Merthyr, Merthyr Tidville, and house associations to get into the harder to reach communities, the Gurness, Gethley Dig, Ganache, different different aspects of Merthyr. Can we get out there and can we really interact with those organisations on a much more personal basis? And that's where we currently are. But obviously one of the biggest things we're facing at the moment is trying to separate away the community trust from the club. That might not sound too great, but obviously there'll be an agreement in place with the club to ensure that, like for example, we'll have five board members, three of which will come from the club. So the club will always have a majority hold over what happens in the community trust. And that is very, very important for us. But ultimately as a club turning over three quarters of a million pound a year, for me to go in for smaller pots of grants is very, very difficult. So at the moment we're trying to separate that off once we do then, it's just a case of continuing our engagement with the local community. Um, something that we have going on now, we talk about education, linking in with the local college, can we get educational schemes based here at Pennant Park, working with them closely. Obviously, the benefits then for students to do volunteering out in the local schools, different stuff like that, is extremely important. So there's a lot going on. It's just a case of, as our uh, slogan goes, making sure there's progress through stability. Again, it's one of those 
Got a powerful mantra, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. not it's not progress through reckless splashing of cash, <laughs> borrowing, yeah. levering in against Definitely you know not. assets, etc. Et and I think it's I think it's one that I know I know. For example, Wrexham kind of talk about a similar mantra of the supporters yeah. up there. Yeah. We spend what we have, and if we don't have it, it doesn't get spent. Mm-hmm. And that's something that runs right across the board. And you know, we, we're lucky to have Gavin Williams. He understands that as as a club, being a Merthyr boy, although going away quite a young age. Um, and of course, our board members and our supporters understand that as well. So. Each aspect of the club generates its own income and it spends the money that it has. If it doesn't have it, it doesn't get spent. What's been demonstrated, I think, clearly, quite admirably, is the role that, that the community has at the heart of Definitely, that. It's, yeah. and that's really encouraging. In terms of supporters direct, I mean, what's kind of on the cards for that as an organisation? Well, obviously, more trusts and more clubs in community ownership. At the highest level, you want to reform the FA so that it's an independent regulator of the game. Instead of saying whenever there's a question about kick-off times or ownership tests for directors or financial transparency. That's a matter for the leagues. And the leagues then say, that's a matter for the clubs, their private businesses. Need the authorities to take a grip of the game Mm. instead of letting it drift into the private business model. And that would include an effective licensing system for football clubs, which tells them what they need to do to be part of the game. And that would include structured dialogue with supporters' trusts. That is, meet at least twice a year with the chairman and chief executive to discuss governance and financial transparency. But, we, but at the very least. At the very least. Sorry, yeah, yeah, that is at the very least. Yeah. You know, and also, as James said, we need to incentivise community ownership. What does that mean? Well, tax breaks on reinventing surpluses, gift aid on donations to those clubs, and to make them exempt from corporation tax. Concrete moves to say, we actually think this model works. You've got the example of yeah. Town. Yeah. You mentioned Wrexham. It works, we're going to help you to make but it work. The key work. thing there is incentivise for me because, probably as my head as you were talking earlier, if you go into communities, and I've been involved in this any number of times, you start talking about trustees, mm. directors, boards, committees, structures, governing documents. Well, hang on a minute. It's a turn off. Yeah, I know. Yeah, absolutely. Is, you know, yeah, that actually yeah, builds yeah. barriers up. And I think the key to that is about having quality, genuine, honest as well engagement. Because sometimes actually it's about engagement people sort of say, actually, our vision is that we want to go down this path. And at some time we might need to look at those jargony words that, that some people will be scared by. So I should add to that then a clarity of language so that we're not turning people oh, off. And, and Absolutely. Always. Always. It, it always. is difficult because it's, it's, it's a difficult agenda to get your head around. What I'm saying is, unless you actually look at governance and ownership, then you're going to be fiddling around the edges of the issues to do with football and to do with community. I, I couldn't agree more. But what we need is for the powers that be to enable us to do it, yes, okay, not for yes. our own benefit, not for Elliot and James and Tim, it's for these people out here on the pitch who are being referred by their GPs or mm, by well, their social workers or whoever, you know. Help us to help them. We mentioned volunteering. When Merthyr Town reformed, all of that, legwork and all that paperwork and the government mm. all that was done by volunteers mm. our board that, that run this club are still volunteers so when you go into these clubs one of the biggest things is identifying a group of people who are happy and are able mm. if you like to be able to put that time and effort in I mean our secretary John Strand the hours that he has put into this club and never received a penny financially is incredible absolutely mm. incredible and so a lot of that can scare people away. We're very lucky in John that he, he loves that type of stuff and he embraces it. But we come back to how important volunteers are in a football club. And you've got full-time employees now. You know, you've, you've gone from one part-time member of staff five years ago to six. They can do the work. That's a key point. James, finally, to wrap up. All I'm going to add on top is just, just to sort of re-emphasise on a, sort of a local level in Wales. We are keen to work with clubs. I say football certainly but other sports clubs to, to look at community ownership or kind of cement community ownership and bring on a new wave to, to follow on from the likes of Murphy so if, if people at sports clubs are interested to know how we might be able to help then please do get in contact because as I said we've got an opportunity with some a small amount of money from Welsh Government, Port Wales and the FAW to look at that don't be shy and, and get in touch with me James at Supporters Direct and I hope that this little venture of mine, the podcast, is helpful in, in some way in kind of spreading that message and maybe kind of facilitating some of that contact and that discussion and dialogue. I could 
generally carrying on for, for far longer, actually. Work beckons. Gents, I'm really grateful for your time. Elliot, best of luck with what you're doing. All credit to you. I think it's, you know, it's genuinely enlightening and, and heartening and encouraging for someone who works in this programme. And, you know, there's some uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty around things like Communities First and yeah, what is going to, yeah. what is, what is government's, Welsh government's agenda for this? Yeah. You know, you look at things like the fire in London, Grenfell Tower, and how disaffected and detached communities yeah. are. These yeah. things still matter. Definitely. And at the heart of this is still people. So, you know, what I want to do with this podcast is to, you know, it's dedicated to community development practice, but it's about sharing the learning, connecting practitioners, promoting the value. And I, I really wanted for quite some time actually to come and look at it through the prism of football. Well, actually, it's not just football, it's about sport, actually. Yeah. You mentioned Tim about rugby and and ice hockey and and other things so hopefully we've done it justice thanks Russell it's been a pleasure being on the show you're welcome James Tim thank you much best luck with your efforts as well being the remind me again the vice chair vice chair supporters direct okay but also looking at that kind of SD support direct Cymru kind of angle as well listen if you're interested in the podcast follow us on Twitter it's comdevd podcast uh, c-o-m-d-e-v-t podcast so yeah, until next time, and it would be great maybe to look at this through the, the prisms of different clubs, perhaps, and certainly they're looking at it maybe from the rugby perspective and, and, and the other sports that would be would be something that would be interesting. But until next time, Dilko Varian, thank you very much, and uh, and best of luck with your, your continuing efforts and ventures. You deserve to succeed. Über New York.